Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, May 29th. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. It's a day before Memorial Day in the United States, the day when we're supposed to remember the sacrifice of soldiers. But of course, remembering wars is something that it's not really that hard to do. Many wars are almost impossible to forget, particularly, I think, and we've talked about this a lot in the show, the Second World War. The Second World War still haunts us and seems to shadow everything else around us. So we've done a number of shows about it. Um, a few weeks ago, we did a show on how the evil legacy of Nazi billionaires remains very much in play in Germany today, a book by David de Jong, a Dutch uh, journalist. Nazi billionaires is making a lot of impact. We've, of course, done many books on on Adolf Hitler, one with the British scholar Lawrence Reese. Uh, he has a new book out or had a new book out last year, Hitler and Stalin. Um, perhaps the most preeminent um, um, British of this period, Richard Overy, was on the show a couple of months ago. And we talked about whether or not the Second World War has even ended yet. It's a it's an open question. Um Overy has a wonderful new book out, Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War, 1931 to 1945. He treats the Second World War as a 14-year-old war, uh, between which began in 1931, ended in 1945. Uh, and of course, memories of the war haven't gone away, particularly, I think, in Germany. Today, we're talking Germany and the Second World War with my guest, Helene Munson. She has a new book out, Hitler's Boy Soldiers, How My Father's Generation Was Trained to Kill and Sent to Die for Germany. And Helene is joining us from Berlin today. Uh, Helene, welcome. Um, this idea of the Second World War never really ending, I guess that's particularly true in Germany, isn't it? I think absolutely. It is around us everywhere. Normally I live in New York, but right now I'm in Berlin and being in Berlin brings me back to it. And especially my generation, even though we were born way after the war, I'm born in the late 1950s. It really not a time went by when we were not constantly reminded of the war. Your book, uh, Hitler, Hitler's Boy Soldiers, How My Father's Generation Was Trained to Kill and Sent to Die for Germany, is in some senses a book about your own childhood. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. Um, it's not just me, as I discovered, it's a whole generation. But um, originally, we uh, I didn't know how much other people were still involved in this because I was in the US and I kind of missed that that movement in Germany, but everybody in my generation is really traumatized from the trauma of their parents because we were the children of the children who had been children during the war. And so there were 10 million German children at the time that the Nazis were in power and they were ruthlessly uh, indoctrinated. They were trained and as the book says, trained to kill in the case of the boys and in the case of the girls. Um, that's not so much addressed in the book. I only mention it a little bit, but the girls had to collect materials. They had to babysit younger children. They, everybody was in the war effort and that trauma has never left the generation of my 
parents, and they passed it on to us. Uh, your father's name was Hans Dunker. Tell me about this Hans Dunker. Tell me his story. <laughs> yes, thank you for asking, uh, Andrew. It's a long story. I tell it in the book. Um, he was what we would call in Germany an Auslandsdeutscher because my grandfather had already left Germany after the First World War because we forget how long the tra trauma was already there. He had been a child in the First World War and uh, after the First World War, Germany was in chaos. As you remember, with the Weimar Republic and everything was, was uh, street fights and inflation and terrible things happening. And so he had left. But then um, in the 1930s, he came to visit Germany and his sister said, oh, the boy will get a very good education in Germany. And the tragic thing is nobody realized that this was an elite Nazi education. Well, as a mid-30s, Helene, I mean, he didn't need to be a genius to understand that uh, this was a pretty brutal dictatorship, even in, the, in 1935, did you? Uh, I think at that point, not all segments of society were really ready to accept that. And not everybody knew about it. There was a period of a honeymoon. And uh, even in the terms of the schooling of my father, there was a, a period of a honeymoon because um, he uh, had a wonderful school. I mean, they had hang gliders, they had sailing boats, they had the golf course, they had they had everything. So what was there not to like at the time? You know, the state was making all this available to the brightest and the best. And what it really was leading to was not really that obvious in the, in the early years. Was this a typical school where all... German no. teenage boys able to go to these schools where they played golf and 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 were able to glide. No, that was that was an absolute elite school. Every uh, region in Germany was only allowed to send two of the brightest uh, students. And the reason my father got in was because his aunt was a teacher and she coached him. She knew what they were looking for. And also they were interested in having uh, children who were from Auslandsdeutsche, from Germans who were living overseas, who would eventually go back overseas and, you know, spread the Nazi gospel. So um, that was an absolute exception uh, that he was allowed into this school. And um, it was very prestigious at the time. I mean, the children who went to that school, they would wear proudly wear their designer uniforms, little, little military uniforms all over. You know, even at the beach, my father was wearing, you know, little 12-year-old. Wearing... Well, uh, Helene, I mean, obviously there's a, a very complicated but central moral element to this. In your view, at what point does a child become morally responsible for their behavior? I have really, really struggled with this. Um, to think at what point does a child become responsible and at what point are we are an adult. At the time, the age of adulthood was 21 years old in Germany. In the 1970s, when I was a, a, a teenager, it was reduced to 18. And these boys were uh, started to fight 15, 16, 17. So legally, they could not vote yet. Um, they were asked to volunteer for the war. So I'm struggling with it because um, there is... There's one exhibit in a museum where, where one man says, I had the blessing of the late birth, meaning I was just a few years too young to, to have to take a decision actively, active against or active before. It's, it's in a chapter. I really struggled with that question myself, and I really cannot you know, answer that definitely. You present your father as uh, one of Hitler's boy soldiers. How... And, and, and much of this book is um, a result of diaries you found of your father. What kind of conversations 
did you have with him, if any, about any of this stuff? I know you grew up in Latin America. Um, I, I had way too little, but that's typical. That whole generation uh, kept everything that they had experienced quiet. Um, I ask friends of mine, school friends, and I ask a lot of people. I'm, I'm very active on some of the Facebook sites that, that where people exchange ideas about these times. And that's very typical that their parents' generation never spoke about it. So I did not talk to him enough about it. And I really regretted that. And part of why I wrote that book was because I felt, failed him. I didn't give him the chance to relieve himself of this burden, of this terrible question, moral question, and of this terrible experience that he had had. And I didn't give him the chance to talk it through. And that's why I wrote the book. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do it for now. I'm giving his story to the world. Um, Helene, we've done many shows on Nazi atrocities of one kind or another. We did one with Wendy Lauer on the political power of photography. I think she's written an extremely important book, The Ravine, A Family, A Photograph, A Holocaust Massacre Revealed. A narrative built around this appalling picture of um, some Ukrainian guards and I think German soldiers uh, executing a, a mother and a young child. Presumably, your father could have been involved in in, in these atrocities. It's probably more than likely, isn't it? Um, that was incredibly incredibly important for, uh, for me to find out about it. I mean, that was the thing I went after. I didn't rest until I knew every movement he had done during the war. Well, how could you I, know that? Um, I went, I researched it. I researched the unit. I went to the places that he mentioned in his diary. I talked to the local people. I asked them what had happened. Um, so as far as I can establish, there was nothing that he was involved in, luckily. But I mean, the terrible thing is that it was maybe a matter of luck. He could have been shipped somewhere else and he could have witnessed something else. Um, I think not all these boys had a choice. Um, I mentioned the case of one Hitler boy who was uh, told to help in, in driving 3,000 Jewish women in, in the, one of the last massacres in Palmuk in, in, into the ocean. And one of his friends, same age, 16 years old, he refused to do it and they shot him on the spot. So these were terrible, terrible choices that these boys had to take at the time. Your father fought on the Eastern Front, is that correct? On the Eastern Front, yes. How did he survive and how did he eventually find his way to Latin America? Um, he survived because he was wounded. He was he, a grenade splinter came into his leg, so that was that was lucky for him. I mean, he had a huge scar for the rest of his life, and he had a forty qualification as a forty percent disability for the rest of his life, but it saved his life. Um, in the book, uh, he in his diary, he describes how his best friend from school uh, bleeds to death and they have to leave him behind. He's still alive. It's terrible. So most of the men he was um, in this unit was uh, didn't survive. So that's how he survived. And then... Um, Afterwards, he was uh, he fled. He, he was for months and months in in, in hospitals, and uh, he describes the experience of how they were constantly relocated because there was so much commotion. The Russians were claiming already the eastern zone of Germany, and there was total confusion. And then eventually, when he is well enough, uh, I think four or five months later, he eventually starts walking home. And then um, from home. Then he find, when he finally reaches the British zone, everybody wanted to be in the British or in the American zone because um, that's where they could expect good treatment. They were terrified of being in the Russian zone. And um, he then makes his way home. But it took him years. He hadn't seen his parents for 12 years. It took him years to come back to South America. 
He didn't. I'm trying to think of the date now. Um, oh, so I see. So his parents were actually living in Latin America. He yes. was educated in Germany. He became one of Hitler's boy soldiers. So he, he was, was essentially going home to Latin America rather than to Germany. He was going home to Latin America. The tragic thing was that when they had left him to be educated, it was shortly before the war started and they could never get their son back. And in fact, he never recon totally reconciled with his parents because he blamed them for not working hard enough to get him back. But I saw the correspondence. I mean, those were very difficult times uh, for, for anybody to do anything. Yeah, to put it mildly, uh, Helene. So, so what is your book, Hitler's Boy Soldiers? What does it tell us that we didn't already know? There have been so many books written about the Second World War. I think I'm, the, the most important part is you're seeing this from a German perspective. Um, I, I'm trying to as openly describe everything I know uh, about what I as a German have experienced in growing up with, with this terrible legacy and what I learned from my father. And it's from a German perspective. And that's what people tell me. They said, we've never thought about it from that way. I mean, I'm always, you know, Germans, I think we really own the Holocaust. You know, we really... We well, really, you should own it, Helene. I mean, there's no one else can own it, right? Yeah, no, we own the Holocaust. We accept this part. Uh, well, so and, you should. You did it. And and our and our own fa families and our own children and our own um, people were also incredibly abused. I mean, I feel like I feel like it's not yet sufficiently stressed that the 10 million German children, German, German children, not of any other background, were also victimized by this regime because the regime was just a monstrous, monstrous regime. They had no respect for anybody and they sacrificed their own people without, without any moment thought. And, and the people were the people who had originally cheered and, and thought of them as a salvation for, the, for their world were in absolute disbelief that they could treat them this way. Your work brings to mind, of course, the, the great uh, Anglo-German writer, W.G. Siebold, very controversial writer when it comes to Germany. Some, some of his fans suggest that he, quote-unquote, deftly investigates post-World War German identity and German involvement in the war. Others are more critical, suggesting that he ransacks Jewish lives for his fiction. He wrote a very influential book on the natural history of destruction, which was one of the first books about what the German people went through in the suffering of the Allied bombing. How important is Siebold and this, what we might think of as revisionist historiography in your work? Um, what would you, how would you summarize his main argument? Well, I would argue in, in, on the natural history of destruction. I'm not sure if he had an argument. I mean, I think that's the point of Siebold is that he was simply reminding people of what happened in the in the allied bombings of germany reminding people of the suffering of the german people he is not uh, he he is not a well-known uh, character in germany germany from what i know i mean it, it's it's not it's not he's not somebody who's quoted among the people that i talk to in, on the different um you know, forums, whatever you call those chats, chats, rooms and things. So perhaps um, he's more popular on the on the left amongst progressives. Um, is there an appetite for your kind of book, Hitler's Boy Soldiers in Germany? Are people ready to rethink, re-remember, if that's the right word, the Second World War? Absolutely. Um, I feel um, that I'm getting a lot of response where, where they... Um, 
they're always asking, is the book available in German? Because in a way, I'm a voice. I'm saying what a lot of people are thinking and what a lot of people are feeling. And um, if you think of other books that came out before, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jennifer Tager's book, My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me. No, um, I'm not familiar with that book. It was also published by The Experiment, which is my publisher. And um, she came out, she found out by accident. In a way, I found out a lot of these things out by accident. I didn't know a lot of these things. She found out by accident that her grandfather had been Amos Goth, the concentration camp um, uh, uh, commander uh, in Schindler's List, who takes target, pra who target practice at the, at the um, concentration camp in Mainz. And she didn't know that this had been her grandfather, but she was half black. I think her father was Nigerian, so that's why her book is called "Her My Father Would uh, My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me," um, because. Oh yeah, I actually that is a book now that that triggers a memory. Yeah. And and she was one of the first ones to come out and say and 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 act, actively admit saying this is who my grandfather was and it's a terrible thing and we need to keep this alive. We need to keep thinking about these terrible things. And she actually owned her history in that. Um, which I felt was very important. And I feel like that's what I'm also doing. I'm owning my history. I'm, I'm saying this is what happened. It, it's terrible. But we need to keep talking about it because, you know, we have the Ukraine. Young soldiers again being sent into war, into trauma. Well, you, you mentioned the Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky has continually said never again. Um, but do you think that there is a danger of turning the Second World War and German behavior, particularly with respect to the Holocaust, into this sort of general, rather vague concept. It was a very unique thing that doesn't seem to have ever happened before or after in history. No, organized think... mass killing on an industrial scale. Yeah, I think we need. I think we need to d distinguish there between um, uh, the Holocaust and sending children into into war. Um, so I'm, I'm talking more about sending children into war. That's what's happening again. And what's happening to those children who are now, I mean, juveniles, they're not technically children. You mean in, in, in the, 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 the war in Ukraine? Yes, I saw a video clip which deeply touched me, which was a young Russian soldier, you know, maybe 18, maybe 19 years old, but very young, uh, uh, being given uh, some hot tea by some local Ukrainians. And the Ukrainian woman gave him her cell phone so he could call his mama at home and tell her that he was still alive. I mean, that's the kind of story I'm talking about. And that's what happened in my in my father's time too, where the local Sudetenzerin gave these boys milk, you know, as they were marching by into war. Um, I'm, this is this is a heartbreaking element. We should not waste young people's lives, you know, against. Well, but uh, I, I mean, Helene, that goes without saying, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, that children yeah, no. shouldn't be involved in war. Sorry, we've done a lot of shows on memory. We did one with the American essayist Colette Brooks on the dangers of misrepresenting our past. She has a lovely collection of. Uh, of her work out called Trapped in the Present Tense. How has this project changed your memories, if that's the right word, of German history of the Second World War and indeed of your father? Um, I think I grew a much bigger appreciation for what the generation of my parents went through. I mean, we're really lucky that they, I mean, 
they, they started with nothing and um, they, they kind of put their own trauma and their own, their own misery aside and their lost childhoods and they tried to build the best life uh, that they could for us. So I think, I think we need to be grateful. I think that's what, you know, because they were difficult parents. Let's not, let's not. Um, when you say difficult, what do you mean? They were morose, they were distant, they were violent. Uh, it, in my in my case, my father was given to uh, he could he could uh, he could fly into a rage over a small cause, and that was stressful for us as children. And my mother would just emotionally retreat. But I've talked to other people in my generation; uh, their parents all have different way, uh, coping mechanisms. But those were in a set, in essence coping mechanisms of of uh, their own childhood trauma. In a time when you didn't have access to psychotherapists, and you know you couldn't psychotherapy the whole nation anyway. Um, so, so uh, I think they've done a, I, I'm now more appreciative of how much they overcame the problems in order to give us such a privileged upbringing in a democratic environment. So that has changed. But the, also what has changed is having done so much research, I have learned so much more that I never even knew. Uh, I mean, I, I was not familiar myself with, with the uh, system of the elite Nazi schools. And I studied history. I mean, I saw Leni Riefenstahl in, in, in Edinburgh in my history class. So, so I knew more than a lot of people already knew, but clearly not enough. There is still so much to tell. I was absolutely shocked that only in 2011, there was a memorial plaque put up in my hometown that there had been a synagogue. I'd grown up there. I never knew that there had been a synagogue in that town. So my research has really given me a totally new perspective on the whole um, situation. What about Germany itself? We did a show with Peter Gumbel, a British-based, well, actually a French-based British journalist on Germany now being the beacon of hope. This was when Merkel was in charge. He has a new book out, Citizens of Everywhere, Searching for Identity in the Age of Brexit. He argues that Germany has become, if you like, the beacon of civilization in the world, which is, again, deeply ironic. Do you think there's some truth to this, that Germany... In, in broad terms, has escaped the Second World War, or is it still embroiled in it, even if it's not acknowledging it formally? I do think that we have done our best to turn over a new leaf. And uh, I know that this is not everybody's opinion, so this is my personal opinion, but I'm very proud of what Angela Merkel has done. I mean, when Angela Merkel called one and a half million uh, people into the country and under difficult circumstances and said, you're welcome here and we can do this, we can integrate you, we can, we can give you a life, um, I think this was a wonderful thing to do. It doesn't make up for the terrible things that... that um, happened in the past but we cannot undo them we can only do the best with what we have now and i feel she's done a really good job it, it's been very difficult it still is difficult but um i think it's so much a step in the right direction do you have any children helene i have a daughter yes and and what kind of education did you give her about not just the war itself but your your family's history Oh, she knows everything. And she, all my family knows everything. They are, in fact, tired of me because at every event I say, oh, guess what? What I just read about German history. And they go, and my brother especially, he goes like, oh, you know, don't, don't, don't mind her. She's, she, that's just all she does that, you know, me studying all this subject. But no, she knows everything. And I have tried to tell her as much as possible. And I feel I've done this also for her. I really wanted to explore all these subjects for myself I wanted to, I wanted to own my share of whatever, whatever is, whatever is the residual 
problems that came from my parents. I wanted to own them and, and really study them so I wouldn't pass them on to her because I think there has to be an end because I'm still very, very, you know, there's really an element of transgenerational trauma in my generation. And I you, think- You use the word trauma. Is that meaning guilt when you say yes. trauma? Guilt, guilt for sure. Guilt for sure, but also, but also, it is difficult. Uh, going, being a German, it, it has been difficult in, for my generation of Germans of going out into the world. I lived in New York City. Um, there were many, many, many times when when I felt there was real resentment against me for being a German, and and I can understand it. It's but it still hurts because I was born in in, in the late fifties. And it not, it, it's not as though I could have done anything for the fact that I was born on that side of, of, of the Atlantic, you know? So, so yes, there is guilt, uh, but there's also a sense of like, you know, I need to feel whole again. I, I, I have not, you know, I have not done this. I, I own it, but I haven't done it. I own the collective guilt, but I have not personally done it. Helene, do you think there's too much of a preoccupation with the Second World War that we might be better off if we're to understand the Second World War, studying the early part of the 20th century, certainly the First World War and the, and the reasons for the First World War? I think there is definitely a, a continuous line. That's what I was saying, that we forget that my grandparents were already in a war. We no, no longer think about that. Uh, and you know, not just my grandparents, the grandparents in in England and in, in, in all around the world. I, I think, unfortunately, it all one thing comes after the other, and it, it's all in succession. So our our decisions today will affect tomorrow's uh, world, and as it was, the decisions of the first world war affected what happened afterwards, what happened in the second world war. The division of Germany affected um, what happened what happened after reunification. Um, because both Germanys became very different from each other, so there are tensions there too. So, you know, today when we talk about the neo-Nazis, that's also an element of an East-West division, which is a complicated thing. Um, so there are so many issues, so we really need to be very aware that whatever we do today will affect tomorrow. Well, that's certainly the case, and I think your, your new book, Hitler's Boy Soldiers, How My Father's Generation Was Trained to Kill and Sent to Die for... Germany is another book in this critically important literature on the Second World War. Congratulations, if that's the right word, Helene. It seems like a form of therapy in some way. Some sense of the book. Um, what else would you suggest people read in addition to your new book, Hitler's Boy Soldiers, on, on um, the Second World War in particular? What are the, the books that really help people make sense of its terrible moral evils and complexities? Definitely Jennifer Tager's book mm. uh, from the exper uh, uh, from the experiment. My grandfather would have uh, shot me because she deals in even more depth with the guilt aspect. Because it, it was coincidental, but she had already studied in Israel and she has a lot of Israeli friends. And so uh, when she discovered that she was descendant of one of the worst Nazi commanders, she struggled even more with, with the guild aspect. So I think that's a very important book in that respect. My book is more on a more historical level. Um, hers is not, hers is more on the, on the contemporary level. Um, I also really think that um, the shortest history of Germany, which is written by um, 
James Hawes, um, who I studied, I was very fortunate to study with at Oxford Brookes University in, in the UK, um, is, a, is a very good summary if you just want to, you know, if you're not that familiar with the time. Uh, it's It just gives you a quick rundown of, of German history. Although I don't agree with everything he says, um, because he he finds he finds the fault of the German um, middle class in northern Germany more uh, at the heart of the Nazi problem, while some of us would argue that other segments of society were also as involved. But that's a, that's a fine that's a fine part. Otherwise, it's a really good book. It's a really good book on getting a feel for Germany. Um, I think uh, Eric Hamann's 10 Million Children, um, in English it's called The School for Barbarians, published in 1938, is an eye-opener, how much they knew at the time what was happening and how much the world ignored it because the book was first published in the, uh, in the US and 40,000 copies sold. So, so it was not that it was a secret what was going on in Germany. Um, I think that's still a book of relevance. Uh, Erica Mann. She's the daughter of the Nobel Prize winner Thomas Mann. 